We're going to journey back to Mark's gospel this morning. So if you would, open your Bibles with me to Mark 6. Now before we read this text, I want to remind you about what's happening up to this point in Mark's gospel. In chapters 4 and 5, we began to see Jesus as he entered into this long journey of ministry, ministering to people in the region of Galilee. He's been preaching the gospel of the kingdom and testifying that the power of the kingdom has come because the king of the kingdom has arrived. And he's setting free the demon-possessed. He's healing the sick and he's raising the dead. And now all, all those things that he did physically for those people who were so needy, all those physical miracles were testifying to Jesus' kingdom authority on earth. And they ultimately testified to what Christ would do for all who believe upon him. He would do something not just physically for us, but spiritually for us if we have truly trusted in him. He would he would set the captive sinner free from Satan's power. He would heal our sick souls from sin and he would resurrect us to eternal life. That's what the miracles testified to. Ultimately, that's what he was going about to testify to through his ministry there in this region. And and now we, we, we come to the end of chapter five, to the beginning of chapter six. And now we're here where all the miracle have been testified to. And the people around this region have all heard this. And then Jesus now enters into chapter six to go home, to go home to Nazareth, the place he grew up. And when he comes home, it's not the typical homecoming. It's not the homecoming of a hero, certainly. It's a homecoming of rejection, hostility. He comes home and encounters familiar people who are yet unbelieving. Look what it says in verses 1 to 6. He, Jesus, went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter? The son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them in response to this offense they took at him in these questions, Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. If you, if you remember in chapter 3, people in his own household thought he had gone mad and they were trying to bring him back from his ministry back home to Nazareth at one point. And so he says this in response to the ultimate rejection these people express at the end of the text we'll look at today. As a result of this offense in verse 3, in verse 5 he says, And he could do no mighty work there in Nazareth, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. It's a serious lesson here about the consequences of unbelief. Just in that last verse. Unbelief, amazed, astonished, 
put Jesus in shock, if you will. And the consequence was he left them to never return again to Nazareth. He left them in their unbelief. He gave them what they wanted. Verse 1 tells us that Jesus was back home. He went back home to Nazareth. Once again, I believe, he went back to where he grew up in order to show them mercy one more time. And this time when he shows up, he is immediately invited, like last time, to teach in the synagogue. Look at verse 2. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, dumbfounded. Okay? And here's what they did. They, They said this, as a result of hearing him teach and hearing about the testimonies of his ministry in this region, they were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? That's the tone. That's the tone. Take take that all in for a second. Think about that carefully. And think about what's happening here in this context. Imagine Jesus comes back home to his hometown. It's a town... A a little larger than Byers, Oklahoma, a town of a population of about 500. Everybody knows Jesus. How couldn't you know Jesus if you grew up there with him? His testimony there was pure and undefiled. He was there among them for 30 years. He he lived among them. He, He walked the streets with them. And we're not sure how long it's been since the last time he was there but but he comes to them again, even after being rejected the first time, quite harshly, to the point that they tried to throw him off a cliff. But he comes back there mercifully one more time to teach them, to point them to the kingdom of God, the good news that he has come to reveal. So he goes to the synagogue. And this was the tradition of the day. If the rabbi was visiting from another city, you would ask him to teach in the synagogue as a, an act of respect. And, and so he's, he's there back in his hometown synagogue. Again, he knows everybody. They all know him. It's likely the same very synagogue that he grew up in. His, his old friends are probably there. His family is certainly there. And the rabbi is probably sitting there in the corner Listening carefully. And what kind of response did he receive when he came and taught them? What kind of reaction did they express? Well, it looks like it's good because it says they were astonished. This time his disciples are there and he's still doing what he did last time. He's teaching the people and he's teaching them with great authority. Sovereign authority, divine authority. The word is interpreting the word before them. Wouldn't you love to have sat there under Jesus's preaching? When you talk about an amazing sermon, that's just astounding. They're still astonished. That's what it says, though. They're still astonished. And notice what they're astonished by. And they're astonished by the right things. It says that he, they're, they're astonished by his authority, his wisdom, and his power when he taught. They're astonished by the truth of what he was saying. But that astonishment quickly transformed into resentment. 
as they thought about what he was saying. We can see the type of astonishment they felt by the questions they were asking. Look at those. Here's basically what they were asking. Where did he receive the authority to teach like this? I mean, he's not trained. He didn't go to the right school. He didn't follow the right rabbis for many years. What is the source of his great wisdom? I mean, where is he getting this from? Is he plagiarizing like some Southern Baptists? Where does he get his wisdom? How is he doing these mighty miracles that we keep hearing about? Maybe they're from another spirit. Maybe they're concluding what the Pharisees concluded. That he was getting this from Satan. It says they were shocked though. They were amazed, astonished. And they were astonished, I think, here. And I think here's what was really messing up their minds. They couldn't deny his power and his authority and his wisdom being from God. They also couldn't deny that his acts, his testimony, was the result of God as well. They knew that he's, his gifting and his testifying to himself and to the truth that he has proclaimed were the marks of the Messiah. And, and they were astonished that he would claim to be the Messiah. They were dumbfounded by this. And they knew that's what he was saying because he'd already said this once before, the last time he was there. They didn't want to believe it at that time and they didn't want to believe it now either. Look at what he said the last time, I believe the last time that he was there. I think these are two different accounts in Luke 4. And see their reactions to his teaching at this time and what he said about who he was. He made it very clear to them. These aren't just the marks of the Messiah. These are the testimony that I am the Messiah. In verse 16 in Luke 4, it says this. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and as was his custom. He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's jubilee, favor, grace. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed upon him. And this is what got him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That astounded them. That astounded them. In verses 28 and 29, we can see their reaction to his interpretation and application of the text. It says this, And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. Now, He's back in Mark 6-2 doing this once again. He's once again exposing them to his wisdom. And they've heard about his testimony. But they are still unchanged. They are entrenched in their sinful rebellion. 
Their sinful rebellion was what they chose rather than submission to the Lord Jesus Christ, their Messiah. They chose rather to believe, if you will, the testimony of their own town's reputation rather than Jesus' testimony of his reputation and his ministry. They truly believed that nothing good comes from Nazareth. They chose to believe that over Jesus because his message and his testimony was scandalous to them. It was offensive to them. Just as we see that Paul tells us the gospel will be to those without faith, those unbelievers. Look at 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, an offense to Jews, a scandal to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Saints, Jesus and his message will always be a stumbling block to those who do not have faith. Those who do not trust in him and his word will always stumble over his revelation. His incarnation is rejected. His word of revelation, the scriptures are rejected by them because they love something more than him. They love their sin. So instead of rejoicing over Jesus and his return that day and his sermon that day, they are offended by him. And you would think, though, even even though they they didn't like the message, they had to be amazed by the testimony of the miracles and they would be eager to have this miracle worker amidst them back again in their town. And they would praise him. He's their hometown son. He's the hero on the road. Everyone flocks to Jesus, but not them. Mark tells us that this hometown crowd was anything but thankful or eager to see Jesus. See, see this is part of the problem here. And this is the problem that we can run into as believers as well. Their familiarity with Jesus only bred contempt and complacency, not faith and thankfulness. There's a warning in that for us as believers. We can be so familiar with Jesus that we are complacent to Jesus and the truth that he reveals. But in this case, their familiarity bred nothing but contempt, not faith. It speaks to the nature of man's depravity. Even the Son of God among them was not enough to convince them. They were entrenched in their sins. They're enslaved. It would take a supernatural work of grace to set them free. Just like the, the work of setting free the captive back in previous chapters. The man who was demon-possessed. They were hostile in their questions toward Jesus. They were, in reality, hostile to his very presence and his message. They didn't like what his presence represented, and they certainly didn't like what his message implied about them. And sinners generally don't. 
They didn't like this message. They didn't like his presence. Because wherever Jesus preached, we can know this for sure. His message revealed who he was, what he came to do, and what sinners must do in response. The gospel demands a response. Neutrality doesn't exist, as we heard this morning. You will either fight against him, reject him, hate the truth, or you'll love righteousness and run to him. In his message, we learn that he was the Messiah. We see this throughout the New Testament. He was the Messiah, the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And he came to this land, to this world, to proclaim his kingdom truth. He said this, we see this in Mark, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. They didn't like that. And sinners generally don't. See, see what happens is when, when Jesus preaches, when the word of God speaks to the unbeliever in the sense What you're seeing is God's laying out before them his righteous requirements for the kingdom. There's no options here. There's not a third choice or second choice. There's only his choice. You you must, according to the gospel, you must trust in his king. You must trust that only he can forgive you of your sins. You must then turn from your religious works of self-righteousness and stop excusing those sins And you must submit to this king. That is the gospel. And it takes a mighty work of grace to bring that about in a sinner's heart. And he could do no mighty works there. He would not do any mighty works there. See, church, the message Jesus preached in his very presence is still why sinners find the gospel offensive today. It's why their response here in verse 3 to Jesus quickly turns from astonishment into resentment and even open hostility. Look at verse 3 more clearly, more precisely this morning. Notice that their their hostility toward Jesus became, (laughs) well, became personal. (laughs) It was very personal. These are accusatory questions. They're really statements In the form of a question. Verse 3 says, Is not this the carpenter? I mean, he's just a plain old craftsman like the rest of us. He's a commoner. In other words, look, this is just Jesus. He didn't go to seminary. He wasn't discipled by the, the eloquent rabbis. He's no better than any of us. He's just a carpenter. That's the implication of this question. And in verse 3, he goes on to say, Is is not this the son of Mary? Come on. I mean, look, typically, Jews would identify with the name of their father, not their mother. There's a lot going on in this question. This is meant to be a low blow to Jesus. To hurt him personally. And they did that to justify their unbelief. Because what they were trying to do was to cast doubt on the legitimacy of Jesus' birth so they could ultimately cast doubt on Jesus' own integrity and his holiness as the Son of God. This is evil. It's the dark side of unbelief. It doesn't look as hostile as pushing him off a cliff, 
But if they could have killed him there in that place, they would have. They were trying to rip away any credibility that he had in their hearts to justify their unbelief and rejection of him. They go on further in their hostility in verse 3 to say, Is not this the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? In other words, who does he think he is anyway? Who does he think? He's, just a, he's, like, he's like his brothers and sisters. He's just a common person from Nazareth. Their attitude was wicked. It was hostile toward Jesus, resentful toward Jesus. And we know that's their attitude because of the final words that we see in verse 3. Look what it says. They took offense at Jesus. They were insulted by his message and his claims of authority. This is just Jesus, the carpenter. We know his family. He's no better than us. He's just another man. That's what they were saying. So I think that this says a lot to why Jesus came back there once again. It testified that he's more than a man because a man would not go back. But he is the son of God, full of mercy and kindness. And he goes back to them again in mercy, preaching the good news one more time. And as a result, they ignored his teaching. They tried to discredit him and reject him as Messiah. That is open hostility. That's what they were expressing. In verse 4, let me get back there. In verse 4, Mark shows us something again, I think, important to consider here. He shows us how Jesus now, as a result of their response, how Jesus is going to respond to their incredible unbelief and offense. Now, he initially responds by quoting a proverbial adage of the day. Look at verse 4. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. That wasn't a scripture. That was a proverbial adage of the day. But notice, I think, why he chose it. Notice the personal nature of this proverbial statement. A prophet's not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. You know, the majority of the town's probably sitting there. His family is there. His extended family is there. His immediate family is there. What's he saying? He's saying, look, the circle's getting smaller and smaller. Uh, it's, it's, you have attacked me, and you just testified to your own sinfulness and depravity. You testified that you are treating me like the Old Testament people treated the prophets, which, by the way, was a somewhat slight way to say, I am a prophet of God. And he's more than that, but he's certainly not less. And as a result of this statement, I think what we're seeing is, is Jesus' amazement. He, he's amazed that the people closest to him did not believe in him. Now listen, Jesus is truly God and truly man. And, and you, as a Christian, you have spent time with people you love, witnessing to them, your children, your family, your friends, 
And, and, and they like you, they put up with you, they tolerate you, but they will not listen to you at times. And you're just shocked by that. You're like, this is the good news of the gospel. This is your only hope. Why won't you listen to me? There's a part of that that I think Jesus is expressing here. He's just amazed because he sees now what he knows spiritually about their condition. He sees it now physically. He is omnipresent and omniscient. He sees them, he sees their lives, and he knows their hearts all the time. But now he's seeing them face to face in their unbelief. And he is just amazed at how deep this depravity and blindness goes. He's amazed because he knows his own testimony. He knows how he has accurately handled the word of truth. His life was holy, innocent, and unstained by sin. And yet they didn't believe in his words. His ministry is marked by mighty works of God, miracles, but they wouldn't trust in his authority. This is amazing to him. It's just coming to his mind again and again. This is why I have to come to this world. They're dead in their sins and trespasses. They're blinded by the God of this world and by their own sin. I mean, these people had heard all about Jesus. They had heard how he had calmed the raging storm by the word of his power. They had heard how he had delivered a man possessed by demons. They had heard how he had healed a woman with an incurable disease. And then they they heard that he raised a 12-year-old girl from the dead. No man can do this. And greater than all that, they heard him personally preach the word to them. And they resented him. He did many marvelous things to display his power and his mercy. Yet his own hometown, who knew all all these things, rejected him. They rejected their hometown son whose whose life was impeccable and his power was unmistakable. Their unbelief blinded them to the obvious and hardened their hearts against God. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Paul tells us the God of this world had blinded their eyes. To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. Jesus himself, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now that that reality, I think that reality there is what leads to Jesus' terrifying further response. If you'll jump down to verse 6. As a result of their offense at him, it says, And he marveled because of their unbelief. He marveled, pondered, took it in, and considered it deeply. He marveled because of their unbelief. In Matthew 8, we can see that he marveled over the amazing belief of a Roman centurion, though. There's only a couple of places where Jesus marvels at anything that's here and in Matthew 8. He, he marvels over the incredible belief of a Gentile, a Roman centurion. But here, here in his own hometown, he is marveling over the incredible unbelief of these people who know him best. 
He's marveling over these things because they had heard his power for preaching. They knew his incredible testimony. And yet they were offended at his presence and the truth he proclaimed. Saints, it's still the same today when you preach the gospel to sinners. Men would rather remain in their sin than bow their knees to the Savior every time. Unless God does a mighty work of grace to transform their hearts, to regenerate them. But in this condition, in this rebellion and resentment that he sees here, he is astonished by the depth of the darkness in man's heart. The depth and darkness of mankind's unbelief. Now, now notice, let's jump back to verse 5. Notice what Mark says here, further commenting on what Jesus' response was like here. Mark, verse 5, says that as a result of their outright rejection and offense at Jesus, it says he could do no mighty work there except that he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. He could do no mighty work there. Except he did heal a few. A few who came to him. Who trusted in him. But most or many would not. And then he would not. He could do no mighty work there. Think on that a second. What's that mean? Who is it we're speaking of? Well, this is Jesus, the Son of God. The one who has just set free people from Satan's power. The one who is the healer of the sick. The one who is the Lord of all nature, creation. The one who raises the dead. The the one who is God in the flesh. This Jesus could do no mighty works in Nazareth. Well, obviously, it's not because he lacked the power or authority to do so. The word of faith people take these things to a degree of heresy that's beyond belief. Let's get it right. Verse 5 is, is actually meant to shine a light on the devastating result or consequence of unbelief. See, unbelief, here's what unbelief does. Unbelief blinds us to the obvious. Unbelief robs us of the truth. And unbelief leaves us in the darkness. And that's what's happening here. He's not doing any mighty work there. He's not rewarding them for their unbelief. He's not an entertainer. He's not a performer for them. He is the Son of God. Come to redeem sinners. So he does no mighty work there. Understand what this is saying and what it's not saying this morning, okay? He's not saying that Jesus needed their faith so that he could exercise his power to do miracles. That's not what he's saying at all. He's not like Santa and he's actually needing Buddy the Elf to come along and help him fill up his faith tank so he can do these mighty works. That's not what's happening here. And here's why it's not happening here. The power of faith is not in the strength or intensity of your faith. The power of faith is not in the largeness of your faith. The power of faith is in the object of your faith. And if your faith isn't in Jesus, your faith is in vain. So let's be clear on verse 5. Here is why Mark 
says that he could do no mighty work there. It was due to their incredible unbelief and rejection. We, we know from, from chapters 4 and 5 that he was fully capable of doing mighty sovereign acts despite the faith of those around him. So he wasn't incapable of doing these things here. He wasn't incapable because man was hindering him from doing these mighty works. The lack of mighty works in Nazareth had nothing to do with his capability. The absence of mighty works here was due to their hostility and the rejection of him. That's what kept him from doing mighty works among them and for them. The performance, listen, like I said, the performance of miracles apart from faith were not to entertain sinners. The the performance of miracles apart from faith would not entertain them at all. It would actually lead them to a greater condemnation before God. Listen to how William Lane helps us understand what's going on here. He writes, The performance of miracles in the absence of faith would have resulted only in the aggravation of human guilt and the hardening of men's hearts toward God. Given their hostility, the performance of miracles would have only resulted in aggravation and hardening. It would have added to their future judgment. That's why he didn't do it. He didn't come to perform a miracle or convince them with these amazing signs. He wasn't their entertainer. He didn't need to prove himself to them. When he comes, it says he he comes to them out of mercy, but they rejected him. So he would not do mighty works there to reward them due to the hardness of their hearts. He wouldn't further compound their guilt by casting pearls before swine and have them trampled by their ungratefulness and their unbelief. So no mighty works were done there for them. Here's the frightening part. In verse 6, it says, and he left them. He's astonished. He's marveling over them and their unbelief. And then he leaves them in their unbelief. Because they would not come to him in spite of evidence and truth and the power of God in his life. That tells me something here, saints. It tells me that the consequences of unbelief are serious and grievous. Especially the kind of unbelief that rejects Jesus as those in Nazareth did in light of their familiarity with him. This is where I want to address us this morning. I know that many of you are born again. You believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you were saved. But in any crowd, in any congregation, there are people among us that have yet to believe and repent of their sins. And many times I wonder in this Christianized land, if it's not because of their familiarity with Jesus, I think that that's what sometimes keeps people from actually bowing the knee to Jesus. They think they know him because they hear a lot about him. In light of their familiarity with him, And the kind of unbelief that they expressed as a result, Jesus leaves them in their sin. I think maybe you should think about that this morning. Have you attended church most of your life, young or old? Have have you heard or read the gospel many, many times? Are, Are you familiar, truly familiar with who Jesus is? You know all about him, but you don't yet 
know Him, you've not yet trusted in Jesus or the good news that He proclaimed. You may know the facts about Him inside and out. Maybe you even love Reformed theology because it it elevates your mind and your intellect. But do you love the God of Reformed theology? You may know all these things. You may understand that Jesus truly did live and die historically and rose from the dead. But you have not yet yielded your life to his lordship and love. I want to plead with you this morning. Because most of the time when people will not come to Jesus in light of all their familiarity with Jesus and his word. It's because they don't want to be under his rule. The thought of him calling you to change your lifestyle is offensive to you. We are autonomous people. I need no one to rule over me. Yes, you do. Because you are a slave to someone. Either God or sin. The thought of him calling you, though, is offensive because you know it's going to change the way you live. That's how the people of Nazareth felt in verse 3. That's why they took offense at him. This message would change their lives. And they would not have it. They didn't want it. 1 Peter 2.8 tells us why Jesus' message and his person offended them. To them, Jesus was a stumbling or a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. Look, Jesus' words and his authority, they were offensive to the people in Nazareth, even though they actually knew that his words were true. His testimony was valid. Nonetheless, his words and his authority were offensive to these people because it would challenge them to submit to him. They had already acknowledged How great his authority was, his wisdom and his power and his preaching. But they would not submit to him as the Lord over their lives and heed his words. See, listen, this is what this is what I think Jesus is marveling over here. (laughs) He's, He's not marveling over the fact that unbelief exists. He knows this. He's marveling over the fact that. They didn't reject him due to a lack of evidence, but because of it. No one rejects him for a lack of evidence, but because of it. They reject Jesus in spite of all the overwhelming evidence before them. Folks, that's what sinners do apart from grace. Sinners refuse God's forgiveness because they love their sin more than they love the Savior, Jesus Christ. And they deny the light of God's word because they love the darkness of this world. The reasons for rejecting the Lord Jesus have always been the same since Genesis. Listen to how John MacArthur puts it. This is really, I think, profound to think about because this is at the heart of what's happening here in this narrative. MacArthur writes, It is tragic that small issues can be used as great excuses for not believing. The people of Nazareth were like people throughout the history of the church who can find every foolish reason to justify their rejection of Jesus and the gospel. 
They don't like the attitude of the one who witnessed to them. They think that most church people are hypocrites. They're offended at the slightest things that Christians do. They put up one smokescreen after another to excuse their unwillingness to believe the clear and demanding claims and promises of Christ. That's what's happening there in this narrative in Mark 6. Is that happening in your life right now? God knows. But if this sums up your heart, and it would have summed up my heart before he regenerated me by his grace... Let me let me offer some hope to you today if you are so familiar with Jesus, but you haven't submitted to him yet as Lord. Now is the acceptable time to look to him and be saved, to believe upon his words of promise. Now, I find it interesting about what I'm fixing to say and what Blake taught this morning, because his words of promise aren't just about blessings. It's also about cursings. His word reveals That in our sin, we suppress the truth and unrighteousness and that he is a holy God. And that apart from faith in Jesus, no one can please him or see him and they will be separated from him eternally. That's the word of promise. Now, it goes further beyond the, the bad news to the good. The only hope for people like this who are under his wrath, those who are facing him and his judgment rather than a reward because they suppress the truth in their unrighteousness to justify their unbelief and sin. The only hope for condemned sinners like that is to look to Christ. Trust in the sinless and merciful Lord Jesus today. He is the one who went to the cross to absorb the wrath your sin deserved. He went there to absorb the wrath or the unbelief you actually expressed. This is a marvelous hope that we have here in Jesus. So let me just say this. I want to beg you this morning. I want to beg you and I want to command you today. No matter who you are here, God knows your heart. So I want to beg and command you to repent And entrust your soul to Jesus, the Son of God. Turn away from the sins and self-righteousness that has marked your life. And turn in faith to Jesus. Trust in Him and you will be saved and you will be transformed by His mighty work of grace. That is what is truly astonishing here. We should be amazed by this. Be amazed by the truth that we see here in this narrative today. The consequences of unbelief are serious, but the rewards of his grace are eternal and glorious. That is astounding. We don't deserve it. Yet he's granted it to us by coming to us to take our place. Let's pray and give thanks for that this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. To once again be addressed by you and to have our hearts examined. We pray that that if there be anyone here who has been so familiar with you yet hasn't come to you in faith, we pray that today would be the day of their salvation. I expect that you will save those who hear this word of truth. Lord, I pray that you will work in their hearts in a mighty way because you are sovereign and you are good. And you work through the means of your word. 
We pray, Lord, that the power of the gospel, the dunamai, the the power of God that is inherent in the gospel would be used to bring the sinner to regeneration and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and submit to his lordship and rejoice in the truth. I pray all this today in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.